welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. My colleague and co-host Tracy Elway is out this week, so not going to be a long introduction. But one of the big things that's going to happen, or at least expected to happen in markets in 2019, is the flotation of some pretty big, highly anticipated IPOs. Some of those Silicon Valley unicorns that people have been talking about forever Uber, Lyft, Slack, all of them, plus more likely to go public uh, this year after a long wait. Of course, many of them are huge and they're going public at a stage in life uh, that is much later than many of the big tech companies uh, that are currently public when they decide to go public or when they decide to do their IPO. So I want to talk more about the IPO market on today's episode. And to discuss this, I have with me Rhett Wallace. He is the founder and CEO of Triton AI, a company that analyzes IPOs through various uh, proprietary measures. And we're going to talk about the evolution of the IPO market, as well as how to analyze an IPO, because theoretically, there might be people out there looking at some of these that would like to have some perspective on how to think about the value and the uh, investment appeal of these well-known companies. So, Rhett, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. Let's start with that question about why these companies are, so people say, coming public much later in life. So companies like Amazon and Microsoft and Apple, they essentially became did their IPOs when they were fairly tiny startups, at least by today's standards. What's changed since then, the 1980s to 2019, such that these big companies are already produced billionaires and people have gone on to great fortunes ever before floating a share of stock? Sure. Well, like most things, there are a couple of different narratives by way of explanation. What you'll hear from people in Silicon Valley is that founders don't like to take their companies public because being a public company CEO is kind of a pain in the neck. Right. And so anybody who's able to comply with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act and other things that were imposed on publicly traded companies as a protection against retail investors who buy their shares, you know, if you have access to capital in the private markets it might be easier for you to stay private and not expose your numbers, expose yourself to liability and so forth. So almost all of the reasons that you could think of why a company wouldn't go public are regulatory. They're, they mm. stem from the changes in the regulations of the securities business, and there's a long, geeky narrative that we could get into about that. When companies like Amazon and Netscape and Yahoo went public on a couple of million dollars of sales and, you know, earlier generations of companies like Intel and so forth went public, you know, really as soon as they got to revenue, that's because capital formation happened in the public market. Let's actually, uh, let's back up for a second. Tell me about your firm and why this is an area that you pursued. What is it about IPOs that are interesting in general? And what is your background that caused you or that prompted you to go into analyzing them and providing this service of uh, breaking them down? Sure. Well, it's I, IPOs are a very good example of what came after the Great Depression when the government decided to reform the securities industry so that you didn't have a big speculative bubble anymore, the kind that created the 1929 stock market crash. And so the innovation at that moment was that securities come with data. Hmm. stapling the 10Ks and the 10Qs, the regular recurring reporting and disclosure to, so investors would know what they are buying was the great innovation after 1929. And that 
prompted a situation where companies, if they wanted to trade stocks with each other or have people buy their shares, they had to be public. And so companies went public much earlier. If you, you know, again, geekily read like the biography of Rockefeller, for example, before the crash, one of the reasons he was so successful in investing is that he had access to information that wasn't broadly available. That always helps. Right. So information has always been a key component of being successful as an investor. And so the origin story of our firm is that we saw what was happening, that fewer and fewer companies were going public, and that meant that more and more of the interesting companies were private, and these companies operated outside of the information regime of the Securities Acts of the United States. The other thing that we noticed is that all of the information architecture that was installed as the operating system of the securities trading institutions was developed in the 1930s. So like generally accepted accounting principles. Some people will tell you it's like, you know, the perfect information that you could have about a company, but it never existed until 1938. Like Moses did not come down from the mountain with gap. Company categorization, the standard industrial classification system, again, like the 1930s. And so these pieces of data architecture haven't iterated and advanced. So we're still sort of stuck in the 30s with the way companies are analyzed. So the origin story of our company was we were looking for ways to be smart about investing in companies that were generally private companies. And the architecture that people used to look at public companies wasn't particularly serviceable to that end. So we had to build a new one. So obviously, when a company files to go public and it files its S1 to the SEC, the company engages in the practice of putting its numbers into a type of a structure that's similar to other public companies or identical. It then has to... Correct. There's a, there's a template that everyone has to adhere to. But th- there's still the problem of investors haven't really gotten to know these companies. Mm-hmm. And even within generally accepted accounting principles, there's all kinds of idiosyncrasies and opinions and different approaches and companies that have been public for a while. People become familiar with aspects of their business model and they understand mm-hmm. the moving parts. And that just doesn't exist yet, certainly at the time of the S-1 filing. So when you look at an S-1 filing, besides the obvious, the balance sheet and the income statement and the cash flow statement, what else are you looking for when you start to break down what, you know, looking at these companies from the perspective of an investor? So our point of view on companies is that a company is really just a receptacle for different product lines. So our trope example is that Uber X and Uber Eats live inside the same company, but they're totally different businesses, completely different product lines. So as companies go public much later in their life, what it means is that the audit of the consolidated entity disguises all mm. of the individual operations that are happening inside of a company that might have a bike sharing you know, business and a scooter sharing business and operates all over the world in different types of jurisdictions. And so the bigger it is, the harder it is to get your arms around it unless you can see the detail. So that's a, that's a really interesting point. So if a company is just in the business of making widgets, then you can have some sense of like, okay, widgets cost the company this much to build and raw materials cost this much and labor costs this much and you sell the widgets for this much and then you look at the gap between costs and the sale and you know something about the business. 100%. But with these big companies and with new businesses that people don't understand and sort of novel business models, 
simply subtracting costs from revenues, Mm -hmm. it just doesn't tell you that much about the company. The architecture of a digital company is just completely different than the architecture of a 1930s railroad or metals and mining company. One of the things that's, you know, for, again, geeks that have spent a lot of time studying how Gap works and have suffered through accounting class, inventory accounting is one of the things that's like really painful and the FIFO, LIFO kind of stuff. How do you track the inventory of Facebook? Well, so then that gets to the question, okay, going back to the Uber example, obviously it's still probably mostly a car sharing company, but in many different businesses, and they do also now have several different lines, and in some places they have scooters. So how do you go about essentially trying to disassemble the business from this consolidated, uh, these consolidated financial statements? So when we started out, we were looking for ways to be smart about how to tell which dog walking app is going to be better than the other dog walking apps, for example, because you listen to the young you know, entrepreneurs come and pitch you a company and it always sounds good, but you don't have a comparative base of data. Right. And so the SIC code system was no use to us whatsoever in how to categorize companies into the bucket of dog walking apps and then figure out which one was going to be the best dog walking app. So we had to design an architecture that you could get the apples and apples in the same buckets and separate them from the oranges and the grab apples and the tangerines and everything else. And so one of the things that was fairly funny about this is if you use a sort of you know, a top-downy SIC-level type categorization system, and you use a word like transportation, what we found is that companies like Uber bucketed into the same bucket as Zipcar, right? right? But you look at it, and you're like, okay, well, Uber doesn't own any cars. Zipcar owns thousands of cars that they have to park, maintain, fuel, paint, all that sort of stuff. So it's like, okay, even though from a a sort of narrative perspective, these things look the same. They're really not the same. So our response to this was to flip everything upside down and to look at how the thing works in terms of what does the customer pay for and what does the customer actually get. So in this example, if you're trying to go to Brooklyn from Manhattan, you could rent a car with Zipcar and drive it yourself, or you could have Uber drive you there And it just turns out that the mechanics of the system that delivers a ride versus the access to a car are totally different things. Right. So is there enough information straight from the S1s or I guess Zipcar has been public for a while, right, to actually perform that calculation or do you need to go elsewhere? Well, so what's great about it is usually you don't need the S1 to know like how a Zipcar works because Zipcar tells you everything about how it works on their website. Right. So if you flip the thing upside down and look at it like a user, it's actually not very difficult to figure out how these mousetraps work. Now, one of the things we've talked about, because we've talked on uh, on air on TV before, is sort of non-financial statement characteristics of companies. So people are interested in things like, you know, just the level of transparency, period, structural, things like voting control. What are the other things that you look at when you analyze a private company or a soon-to-be public company beyond just the numbers? Sure. Well, one of the things about Gap is that Gap translates everything into dollars, so, like, the, the numbers you see on a gap p are all dollar-denominated. 
But most of the numbers that are the most interesting about companies aren't dollar denominated, like how many customers and how much do they pay and how long do they stick around and where do I get them from and things like that. Or just how many cars they might have in inventory at a given For example, right? And so there's a big debate that you could read about. Matt Levine here is very articulate on the subject about non-GAAP reporting. And some people get kind of religious about this and say that you shouldn't report things that aren't GAAP because then companies aren't comparable anymore. But the problem is that if you only have the P&L, like, for example, if you were looking at the Snap IPO and you saw that Snap lost a billion dollars in the trailing year, you don't know very much about Snap. But the intuition that people have about that company is, well, I know my teenager can't put it down. But you don't have the statement about how many teenagers and how long they stick around. And what you definitely don't have is the statement of how many advertisers and how long they stick around and how many salespeople it takes to go get those advertisers to pay you and so forth. So to us, again, the numbers that matter are the numbers that help you calculate the mechanics of how the mousetrap works. And those things are often not disclosed in an S1 at all. And you need other ways to go get them. What do you think, you know, is... It's interesting you mentioned Snap, and maybe this is a slight tangent or maybe not, but it feels like there have been efforts with a lot of these internet companies to essentially standardize some of these non-financial metrics. So MAUs, monthly average users, is a popular way to compare them. But it feels like the companies are really pushing back against that or like to, and they want to create their own bespoke ones. And they say, no, 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 you can't compare our MAUs to Facebooks or our DAUs. Community-adjusted EBITDA is my favorite one of those. Twitter recently announced that they were going to, for the first time, start revealing DAUs, daily average users. They're no longer going to report monthly average users. But even their DAU numbers, they're calling them MDAUs, monetizable daily average users, to distinguish from users who they probably aren't going to make any money from, so their MDAUs are going up. Anyway, the point is, what is your view on this? Do companies have an incentive to sort of try to break out of the standardized comparable numbers and come up with their own sort of vanity metrics that are always going up and to the right? I think, you know, the world doesn't divide on this. Like, people don't like accountability, (laughs) right? So if you don't have to be accountable to particular metrics, you'd rather not. One of the things that's interesting about what's happened in capital formation right now is that private company investors have access to all this information, all the real information, not the fake, you know, monetizable daily average users that, you know, they can see all of that sort of stuff. And they have a real sense of how those mechanics work. Once you arrive in public company land, uh, many of those numbers are not disclosed anymore. So you find a situation Mm. where... As capital is forming around these companies, the investors that put up the money have much better access to information. So a more transparent situation, but an illiquid situation. And then you trade liquidity for transparency in the sense that the public investors don't really get to learn any of the, hmm. you know, the way that the mousetrap works, but at least they can sell the stock. And so that's the trade. As far as your question about the standardization, and sorry to go on so long. No, 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 no. Using like an ad-supported company's metrics to analyze a subscription business is just not very helpful. Right. So like engagement metrics, for example, people ask us about our engagement metrics, which I always laugh because I think engagement is bad. We want our users to figure out the answer in as little time as possible because I'm not trying to serve an ad to them. Right. Right. So each company is different. This is what we spent years doing is developing an architecture so that you can understand what kind of company you're looking at and look at the appropriate metrics to do so. Going back to what you were saying about the trade between liquidity and transparency, we had a recent episode a few months ago, we were talking to um, 
a VC, and he was arguing that one of the things that made this period in markets unique is that whereas in the past uh, illiquidity was a penalty for a company and a private company had to offer a bigger premium to get um, private capital because that was more locked in. These days, people are paying a premium for access, in his view, to illiquid companies. Maybe they didn't want to have to mark their books day to day, or maybe there was some sort of prestige value of being in a Lyft or an Uber that caused people to overpay. Do you see that, that the sort of traditional discount that would have in the past come along with private equity stock has flipped? So I'm going to give you two answers to that question. One, just to verify with data the claim that yeah. people pay a premium. Over the last five years, the IPOs that we've looked at tend to trade up in the first half of the first year that they're public, and then in general trade down again below their IPO price. Hmm. Right. So public public market investors, and that's fought. not just that's over the last five years. So Correct. it's not just. We're not just looking at the 2018 effect. No, and it's not just Alibaba or whatever. It's, you know, 150 odd transactions. And so what happens is as a capital markets matter, these things come out. They, you know, the IPO prices, it begins to trade. You get the famous pop, which some people love and some people hate. And in general, these things trade up for a while. And then large amounts of shares are unlocked and people stop paying attention and they change the channel and they look at something else and then they trade down. And so it's definitely true that private market investors have paid a premium. Like the guys who bought the last round of those deals could end up underwater if they didn't sell, but they could sell. So it's unclear if they've been penalized for paying that premium because they had a moment where they probably could have made made a profit on the trade. But in general, it's not a good trade for the broad base of shareholders. So that's item number one. But item number two, why do people pay a premium for this? And the answer, we think, is because if you want to invest in growth companies, you have to pay the price. Hmm. And so if you are a long-only manager who's managing a growth fund who has a carve-out that allows you to invest in Uber, Lyft, whatever, your ability to set price is very limited. But you want to participate in those deals. And as more and more capital has flowed into this place, what happens when there's more demand than supply? Prices go up. So it's kind of like it's a function of the fact that even if we were just looking in public markets, we know that the growth factor has done extremely well in recent years, and that's just even more exacerbated in the ultra-high growth private area. And so that could explain at least part of this premium. Sure. I mean, if you were a growth investor in you know the 1990s, you would be investing in companies publicly right. that were young, and you'd be buying you know Amazon or you know. Yahoo or, or the globe.com, yeah. right? You know, you buy the good and the bad, but you get to do all of that in the public market. Now, all of that capital formation and all of that value appreciation happens in the private market. And the guys with large pools of capital want to participate in that. But what it's also done is created a situation where larger pools of capital, the Vision Fund, for yeah. example, have formed to participate in that trade. I'm glad you mentioned the IPOs prior to the bubble because- Obviously, everyone knows we, you'd be rich if you had bought into that Amazon IPO, but you would have lost all your money if you bought into the Globe.com IPO. People bemoan the decline of IPOs per, for precisely because they have memories of Amazon and Microsoft in their mind. And they say, well, the stock market used to be this avenue where people could uh, make a lot of money investing in these companies. Now that's closed off to anyone who doesn't have access. But of course, there is. it does seem like there's a lot of hindsight bias. Sure. Because the, most of them 
most companies are more like the Globe, right? Sure. Well, Mary Meeker has a great statistic that was in her deck for a long time after the bust, that 2% of the companies that went public during that moment in our culture created more than 100% of the returns. So it was just, so the vast majority of them were total flops. Totally. And, you know, if you were in the two, that compensated for, you know, right. the, the negative J curve, right? So it's, the vast majority were a bust and more money was lost than made in aggregate, right? So you had to be very, very picky to not be one of the losers. Is the decline of the IPO a bad thing? It depends. I mean, if you were a retail investor and in hindsight, you're totally convinced that you would have absolutely put your life savings into Uber if you'd been able to sure. buy it, you know, five years ago, then it's a bad thing. But one of the reasons that the bar has been raised so much for companies to go public is to protect retail investors from themselves, right? Retail investors fueled a lot of the bubble that happened. There are other structural reasons why the internet bubble happened. But there was a huge amount of demand in the same way that people now speculate in cryptocurrencies and other things like that because it was perceived to be an easy buck. People are always going to look for action somewhere. Let's uh, talk about, okay, so as of this moment when we're recording and we don't know, any day now we could get S1 filings from some of these companies that we mentioned. So Uber and Lyft and uh, Slack and a bunch of others that we could get for the first time public data on these companies. Mm-hmm. So when these come out, what are going to be the first things that uh, you look at? And what should people listening at home, what should they start to look at specifically? Uh, well, us first. Our, our system is just to take it apart and do the sort of 15-point inspection on these things. Okay. So does the math make sense? Like, does this company make money? is one of the things that we've talked about, you know, on TV before. There are times where we'll put a company's numbers into our model machine and we'll look at it and see like, geez, there's no setting of the model that produces a profit ever, hmm. right? So that's a really low, low score as far as the earnings power of the company. But we also look at the management team. We look at the founder so power. Go, when you say look at the management team. We score you it. Have a, okay, uh, pause there for a second. So how do you score in theory, a man- the quality of a management team? They're the things that you think that you would think to do yeah. if you wrote out a rigorous system. Like, have they done it before? How long have they worked together? Have they worked in places that you've heard of before? Were they successful there? Did they go to schools that you've heard of before? Right? Do they have advanced degrees? You know? Got it. And then when you toggle to the, the founder aspect of the management team, sometimes you see total control of the founders, which tends to be great because they're highly invested and have a lot of skin in the game. Sometimes, you know, like, for example, a Twitter, you see like the company is totally post-founder. And that means that the management team has economics that are heavily weighted towards the upside, but doesn't have a lot of pain associated with the downside. Mm. So founder power is very important. The quality of the board, the quality of the investors is interesting. How famous is it? Like fame and buzz is one of the things that we score. Companies that nobody's ever heard of, you know, do do less well than companies that are well known. Okay, so you have all these factors, mm-hmm. fifteen different. Uh, yeah, we we yeah, fifteen different scores 15 that roll, di- roll up into the summary score. Fifteen different scores, and so in your experience, the aggregate higher scoring companies do better than the lower ones. Way better. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a business. Or, D- or totally right, but shockingly, because there are times where we get the score. Because, you know, we see it when it comes out of the machine and we look at it and we're like, man, that can't be right. So it's always interesting to us. Like, maybe this will be the one that we, we, you know, have to rebuild the whole system on. I think here's sort of my final question or the key question I have is, do do high scores 
say you should invest in this company or is it if you invested in every company with high scores and shorted or avoided all the companies in low scores would that be a superior strategy oh, other, do you see what I'm do you see like yeah so the aggregate trade is always better got it unless you are so good that you can sniper shot the singular winner but that's incredibly hard to do but the the premise of the scoring system is essentially that on aggregate You'll strip out a lot of noise and be much more likely to have a winning portfolio of IPOs with the higher scoring companies. Not only that, so that's certainly true if you're an institutional investor. Most of our customers are institutions that buy at the IPO price. Mm -hmm. And so the returns are, you know, three times better if you buy the high scores than the low scores. But if you buy the first trade, if you're a retail investor, buying high scores versus low scores is the difference between making money and losing money. Got it. Well... It should be a very interesting year for IPOs, as mentioned, and looking forward to seeing over the coming years how your scores do. I think we have a week or two before it comes, Great. and then buckle up. Well, I'm on vacation next week. It's a good time for it, So hopefully, I'm really hoping I don't miss all these, but then I'll be back. And no, I, I think it. you're good next week. All right, great. Uh, Rhett Wallace of Triton AI, thank you very much for coming on Oddlot. Thanks for having me here. Well, normally I would do a a little outro with Tracy here and we would talk about what a great conversation that was. But I actually think that was a great conversation and I love this topic. And I'm looking forward to all the uh, IPOs this year and seeing how they do. So this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our co-host on Twitter, even though she wasn't here, Tracy Alloway, at Tracy Alloway. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Topher Forges, he's at Forges T, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.